Pantry Studio production. The following may contain strong language and deals with adult themes. Listener discretion is advised. That sun. It was bright against the backdrop of a clear blue sky, with palm trees swaying in the background to the gentle song of a fresh breeze from the Atlantic. People by the thousands were involved in their everyday lives, going on about everyday parts of their lives, and living those lives as the way they always had. Coffee shops bustled, restaurants were filling, tourists everywhere, and Life was good, generally speaking. Oh, but few people noticed those dark clouds gathering on the horizon. There was a storm coming, and it was going to be a big one. And soon, Gainesville would be at the center of something that this northern Florida city had never experienced or expected. Murder was coming to town. The kind of senseless tragedies that would shake and wake everything in its path. It's known for the University of Florida, home of the Gators. Set on the sprawling campus, the Florida Museum of Natural History houses fossils and ethnographic exhibits. It includes the Butterfly Rainforest, home to hundreds of free-flying butterflies and birds. Harn Museum of Art has a huge collection of Asian and African works. The Matheson History Museum has a vintage postcard collection Yet there's no doubt that this was the kind of place that promoted peace, quiet, and education. A way of living that many admired, or aspired to. But all that was about to change. These are the Mountain Mysteries, and this is episode number 34. The Silent Scream. The Mountain Mystery of Danny Rowling. There are over 1.9 billion square acres in the United States alone, and 24% of those are mountainous. The secrets that these regions hold are enormous. Reports of mysterious creatures, strange sightings and sounds, ghosts and murders, and those who have seemingly vanished. There are questions that need asking and answers worth finding. These are the Mountain Mysteries. Here's Chris Sloan.
Thank you so much for joining us for another episode of The Mountain Mysteries. Please support us on Spotify. You can make a one-time donation there or become a Patreon member. For as little as $3 a month, get early commercial-free access to all episodes of The Mountain Mysteries. Gainesville, Florida wasn't always a lively college town. Through the 1980s, it was a much sleepier place with a growing number of gruesome and violent crimes. The city actually led the country in reported rapes. A University of Florida professor was beaten and suffocated with a bag of ice while his killer sat near his body and ate dinner. Another man walked into a fast food restaurant, then herded employees into the freezer, shot them dead, and locked them in. It was back in 1990 that the town moved from these strange Florida crimes to a Ted Bundy-like set of serial murders. On August 24, 1990, Danny Rowling brutally murdered the first of two victims in that town, University of Florida freshman Sonia Larson and Christina Powell. And he didn't stop there. The next day, he broke into another apartment and murdered college student Christina Hoyt. The spree ended with Tracy Pauls and Manny Taboda, who were the last college students to die at the hands of Rowling on August 27th. Rowling earned the title of Gainesville Ripper as he bound most of the bodies, raped three of the girls, and sexually posed some of them. He even went as far as to cut off one of the girls' heads and mounted it to a shelf. In 1994, a struggling actor and screenwriter named Kevin Williamson became engrossed in a news program about a drifter who terrorized Gainesville, Florida, with the murders of five college students over three days in August of 1990. To say that he was alarmed, that's an understatement. But he hammered out the screenplay for what eventually became the motion picture Scream. You remember that. It's one of the most successful movies of 1996 a fright flick that was celebrated for its knowing winks at horror film tropes, and it did breathe some new life into the field. But while Scream delivers lots of slashing scares, in the end, its story of Sydney and the ghost-face-masked killer carries only a passing resemblance to that of Danny Rowling, who would become known as the Gainesville Ripper, whose life of violence and hopelessness would present a difficult task for any screenwriter to describe. Kevin said that back when he was exploring Danny Rowling, he wanted to write about a serial killer on a college campus and an FBI agent hunting down a college professor. But then, he decided to do Scream. Danny Rowling was born in Shreveport, Louisiana. Rowling's parents were James and Claudia. They married when Claudia was just 19. And then she became pregnant with Rowling two weeks later, much to James's revulsion. His father was a Shreveport police officer named James Rowling, who told Danny that he was unwanted from the time he was born, and who abused his mother, Claudia, as well as his brother, Kevin. In one incident, Danny's mother went to the hospital after claiming that her husband tried to make her cut herself with a razor blade. She made repeated attempts to leave her husband, but... It wasn't long before she always returned. Danny was only one year old when his father abused him for the first time. He was beaten because he wasn't crawling properly. 
When Kevin, Danny's younger brother, was born in 1955, well, their abuse only got worse. Claudia did try to escape the toxic marriage, but time and again she kept coming back. When Danny failed the third grade for too many absences due to illness, his mother had a nervous breakdown. Danny's school counselors described him as suffering from an inferiority complex with aggressive tendencies and poor impulse control. In one example of the senior Rowling's sense of discipline, he pinned Danny to the ground, handcuffed him, then had police take his son away because he was embarrassed by him. It was around this time that Rowling turned to art and music for solace. His Christmas gift that year when he was age 15 proved to be one of the happiest memories from his adolescence. He had received a guitar. He also recalled those early years as a time when he developed multiple personalities as a defense from the nightmarish truth about him, with attempts at suicide failing to bring any kind of escape. At age 14, Danny's neighbors caught him peering into their daughter's room. Well, you can guarantee that his father went ballistic on that. He beat him severely, but Danny tried to stay in control and attended church and struggled to hold down steady work. Then he did something that perhaps he hoped would help, something that could give him the discipline that he may have thought he was missing. He enrolled in the United States Air Force. Well, that didn't last very long. He was kicked out of the Air Force in 1972 after getting busted for drug possession. Rowling went to live with his grandfather and, well, for a time, found some stability through his church. He married a woman named Omather Halco, with whom he had a daughter, but eventually he drove her away after exacting the same sort of abuse on her that had been prevalent in his own childhood home. At age 23, after being with his wife for four years, she left him, got a separation, then divorce, after he threatened to kill her. That happened around 1977. Already harboring a habit for voyeurism and plagued by disturbing visions, Rowling took a turn for the worst after the divorce. He raped a woman who resembled his ex-wife and embarked on several armed robberies throughout the South, leading to his incarceration in Jackson, Georgia in 1979. The 1980s brought more of the same for Rowling, who was in and out of jail in Alabama and Mississippi for armed robbery. His time between stints in jail? Oh, well, those were spent traveling the country, stealing from people, and occasionally forcing himself on women, when the opportunity presented. Back in Shreveport in November of 1989, Rowling was fired from his job at a restaurant. That same night, he broke into the home of a 24-year-old woman identified as Julie Grissom and murdered her, her 8-year-old nephew, Sean, and her 55-year-old father, Tom. William, Julie, and Sean were the first three lives taken by Rowling, as far as we know. And then he spread that terror between two states in the late 1980s and early 90s. William Grissom, who was known commonly as Tom, was 55 and divorced. His career had been that of an AT&T supervisor who lived on Beth Lane in Shreveport's Southern Hills neighborhood. He was described as being a nice, polite, friendly, and respectable man, and had been battling throat cancer for years, but was doing better. He was also near retirement. His daughter, 24-year-old Julie, was a petite brunette studying marketing at Louisiana State University of Shreveport. She had transferred to Shreveport earlier in 1989 after attending the Baton Rouge campus and was working part-time at Dillard's in South Park Mall. She was on the verge of graduation. And then the third victim 
Sean, who was only eight years old, was a third grader at Turner Elementary. He was visiting his grandfather, William, and his aunt, Julie, for the weekend in part of his recent birthday and was supposed to return home that Monday, November 6, 1989. But he never did. Around 8.30 that morning, Sean's mother called police after making several unanswered calls to her father-in-law's house and learning from Sean's school that he was not in class. Police then reached out to neighbors asking them to see if the residence was unlocked. It was around a quarter till nine in the morning that three neighbors went over to the brown brick home to check on the family and open the door to the utility room off the garage. That's when the first body was discovered. William's body was slumped against the door, blocking the entrance to the utility room. He had several stab wounds in the back and chest. Apparently, he had been cooking steaks on the backyard grill sometime during that evening. Sean was found face down in the family room with one knife wound to his back that exited through his chest. He was attacked while watching TV. Julie's body was found naked and partially hanging off a bed. She was stabbed at least three times in the back, but was left facing upwards. Vinegar had been applied to the body. That evening, she was planning to go out to a high school friend's wedding and had picked out a red dress. Detectives believe the trio was killed sometime between 6 and 8 p.m. the Saturday before their bodies were found. There was no signs of forced entry, no ransacking, and no robbery. Although there was some indication of struggle, the overall scene was noted as being neat. It was about 10 minutes away from the Beth Lane crime scene, where Danny Rowling had been living with his parents in the 6300 block of West Canal Boulevard in the Sunset Acres neighborhood. He had moved back in with them around the summer of 1988. But before this... Rowling had several run-ins with the law, spending most of a decade in prisons between Mississippi and Georgia. He served three of a four-year prison sentence and was paroled in July of 1988 before returning to Shreveport. He was to report monthly to a parole officer as part of a five-year probationary period relating to the 1985 conviction of robbing a Kroger grocery store in Mississippi. Well, he stayed at his parents' house and didn't stay long. Almost a year after moving back in with him, and roughly six months after the Grissom murders, Rowling fled the area. The Herald Tribune reported that Rowling was never prosecuted for the slayings of Julie, Sean, or Tom Grissom. Rowling's blood matched the type of the killer in that triple homicide, and had also revealed information that only the attacker would know. According to detectives, Rowling sent a description of the murders and admitted to his crime in a letter he wrote to a woman he married while in prison. But Louisiana authorities did not try him for the crimes because his execution in Florida was already expected. Shortly before his execution for the Gainesville murders, Rowling wrote and signed a confession to the Shreveport triple homicide that was made public. He wrote, quote, Hereby I make a formal written statement concerning the murders of Julian, Tom, and Sean Grissom in my hometown of Shreveport, Louisiana. Hal Carter, Julie Grissom's former fiancé, is 100% innocent, totally pure of that crime. I, and I alone, am guilty. End quote. The following May in 1990, Rowling got into one final argument with his father. 
Oh, but this time. He pulled out a gun and shot James in the stomach and head. His father survived but lost the use of an eye and ear before fleeing to Kansas and Florida, eventually arriving in Gainesville. It was back in 1990 that he set up a campsite in a wooded area behind the University of Florida. Rowling embarked on his murder spree as students began the fall semester. It was 1990 on August 24th that Danny broke into the home of Sonia Larson and Christina Powell. Both were incoming freshmen at the University of Florida in Gainesville. Rowling followed them home, broke into their house, and simply overpowered them. Hence began the streak of the Gainesville Ripper. Finding Powell asleep on the downstairs couch, he stood over her briefly, but did not wake her up. Instead, he chose to explore the upstairs bedroom where Larson was also asleep. Rowling murdered Larson, first taping her mouth shut to stop any screams, and then stabbed her to death. She died while trying to fight him off. Rowling then went back downstairs, taped Powell's mouth shut, bound her wrists together behind her back and threatened her with a knife as he cut her clothes off, and then he raped her and forced her face down onto the floor where he stabbed her five times in the back. He forced one young woman to perform oral sex on him before he raped, stabbed, and killed her. He returned to Sonia's dead body and raped her again. Rowling went so far as to cut off the girl's nipples and to keep one of them as some kind of a gruesome, sick trophy. Rowling posed the bodies in sexually provocative positions. He took a shower before he left the apartment. The next day, Rowling killed Christina Hoyt in much the same way. On Saturday, August 25th, Rowling broke into the apartment of 18-year-old Krista by prying open a sliding glass door with a K-bar knife and a screwdriver. Finding that she was not home, he actually waited in the living room for her to return. At 11 a.m., Hoyt entered the apartment and Rowling surprised her from behind, placing her in a chokehold. After she had been subdued, he taped her mouth shut, bound her wrists together, and led her into the bedroom, where he cut the clothes from her body and then raped her. As in the Powell murder, he forced her face down and stabbed her in the back, rupturing her heart. He also removed her nipples and placed them beside of her. After arriving back at his campsite, Rowling could not find his wallet. He thought he may have left it at the murder scene, so he returned, at which time he decided to decapitate Hoyt's body and pose her head on a shelf facing the corpse and set her upright on the edge of her bed. That kind of shocking scene would add to the enormous stress of whoever discovered her. By now, news of the murders had spread across the university. Authorities put out as much information as they could to try to catch this guy, and students slept in groups and took every precaution they could think of. One woman, identified as 19-year-old Stacy Green, said that they slept with steak knives late at night. She was a junior from Jacksonville who had found out about the latest murders when she rode her bike past the crime scene on a Tuesday. She said that she needed to call her mom, that that was unreal. The murders all occurred less than two miles from each other around the University of Florida. The university consequently canceled classes for a week. Students brought baseball bats with them everywhere they went, and no one went out alone during the day or night. Students triple-locked doors and some slept in shifts, so someone was awake at all times. By the end of August, thousands of students left campus and around 700 never came back because they feared for their lives. 
Despite all of this, the Gainesville Ripper killed one more time. It was on a Monday, August 27th, Rowling broke into an apartment by prying open the sliding glass door with the same tools he had used previously. Tracy Pauls, who was 23, was living with her roommate, Manny Taboda, also 23. Rowling found Taboda asleep in one of the bedrooms and after a short struggle with the young man, eventually killed him. Hearing the commotion, Pauls went down the hall to Taboda's bedroom and saw Rowling. She attempted to barricade herself in her bedroom, but Rowling broke through the door. He then taped her mouth and wrists, cutting off her clothing and raped her, before turning her over and stabbing her three times in the back. Rowling posed Paul's body, but left Tabotas in the same position in which he had died. Authorities feel Rowling did not manage to mutilate these bodies because he may have been in danger of getting caught or was otherwise interrupted. These are some reports that the people who reported the murders to the police reported that there was a black bag at the crime scene that was no longer there when police arrived. With the exception of Tabota, all of the victims were petite Caucasian brunettes with brown eyes. Although law enforcement initially had very few leads, police did identify two suspects. One, a University of Florida student who had a history of mental illness and bore numerous scars on his face from a car accident, making him an ideal image when discussing news about the investigation. His photo was shown repeatedly by media outlets. Authorities publicly cleared him of all charges after Rowling's arrest. The other suspect was also later cleared. Rowling's father, who was a 20-year veteran cop of the Shreveport Police Department, had not only taught his son how to take abuse all of his life, but he also taught Danny how to cover his tracks. Police could not ever find enough evidence at a crime scene to implicate Danny Rowling. Instead of leaving the duct tape on his dead bodies, Danny disposed of it in dumpsters to get rid of any fingerprints. Danny also used cleaning solvents on the dead body to remove any traces of semen, although trace amounts of DNA were still left. Some of the females' bodies were left in sexually suggestive positions, which offered authorities a clue into the killer's method. Meanwhile, the killer that they were looking for? Well, he was already in jail. They had him and didn't know it. In September, Rowling had robbed a Winn-Dixie grocery store at gunpoint in Ocala, Florida, and he was nabbed after crashing the getaway car. It wasn't until early of next year when authorities used a tooth extracted from Rowling to link him to the DNA evidence at the Gainesville crime scenes. That's when he became a primary suspect. Already facing multiple life sentences for his various armed robberies, Rowling was formally charged with the murders of the five Gainesville students in June of 1992. He claimed to have been driven by an alternate personality named Gemini. It was around this time that he began to correspond with a journalist identified as Sandra London, who would eventually become his fiancée and help him put together a book entitled The Making of a Serial Killer. And while he had pleaded not guilty, he used fellow inmate Bobby Lewis as his mouthpiece to confess to the murders. In February of 1994, just before the start of his trial, Rowling abruptly changed his plea to guilty. To determine his sentence, jurors listened to the testimony of his mother, who recalled the abuse that the defendant had received at the hands of his father, and from a psychiatrist who described an alternate personality of Rowling's named Gemini that drove him to these sadistic acts. Rowling's was diagnosed with antisocial personality disorder, 
borderline personality disorder, and paraphilia. Two other psychiatrists also testified that a severe personality disorder was in play, but stated that, in their belief, Rowling understood the magnitude of his crimes. The jury unanimously found Rowling guilty of first-degree murder on all five counts in late March. It was a month later, on April 20, 1994, that he was sentenced to death. His appeals exhausted, Rowling faced execution at Florida State Prison on October 25, 2006. He was 52 years old at the time of his execution and was the 63rd person executed by the state of Florida since 1973 when the death penalty was brought back. On Wednesday, Rowling met from 8 to 11 a.m. with his brother Kevin and a minister from his brother's Longview, Texas church. Physical contact was allowed during the last hour of the visit, according to Florida Department of Corrections policy. He was then served his last meal of a lobster tail, butterfly shrimp, baked potato, strawberry cheesecake, and sweet tea. Prisoners on death row for their last meal can have any meal they'd like as long as it's less than 40 bucks, and the food and non-alcoholic drinks are available at the prison, under department rules. After the meal, the Reverend Mike Hutspeth was scheduled to spend from around noon until 4 p.m. speaking with Rowling through the bars of his cell. Hutspeth, Rowling's designated spiritual advisor, serves as pastor of King's Temple United Pentecostal Church in Rowling's hometown of Shreveport, Louisiana. While restrained in a gurney, Rowling turned his head and briefly gazed with his pale blue eyes at the mother of one of his five victims, and then, in a haunting undertone, sang Drawl of Angels, Mountains, and, in reference to St. Paul, of seeing through a glass now darkly. Sung that for three minutes. That was happening as the lethal injection drugs were about to pump into him. Roland chanted the refrain, None greater than thee, O Lord. None greater than thee. He continued to sing or speak in the windowed chamber after the microphone was cut. Never once did he mention sorrow or any kind of remorse or regret for his deadly Gainesville rampage 16 years previous to that the same rampage that snuffed out the lives of five young people. Nor did he sing of the pain it caused, and he never asked for forgiveness. Probably a good thing that he didn't, because there was no forgiveness coming around from the dozen family members in the witness room that was packed with 30 other spectators. Ricky Pauls, the mother at whom Rowling had glanced, said she had one reaction. Hatred. Very very bitter throughout this whole thing. She said that she saw his breath go out of him. And they waited for the last time. Justice had been done. With Rowling's death, she said, she could remember only her daughter now, Tracy Pauls. Rowling, 52 years of age, was pronounced dead at 13 minutes past 6 p.m., 13 minutes after he started singing, the two minutes after his body stopped quivering and his jowls fell, puffed and discolored. He was the 63rd person executed since 1973 when Florida reinstated the death penalty. Only in one respect did Rowling's death mirror that of his victims. He was bound and helpless. But unlike his victims, 
Rowling wasn't attacked by ambush while he slept. His victims were stabbed so hard with a United States Marine Corps-style K-Bar knife that they chipped and slashed bones as he was killing them. That evidence was later shown to a jury. After Rowling was pronounced dead, the staff at Florida State Prison willed his body out. In contrast, Rowling posed his mutilated victims in sexually provocative positions and kept body parts as trophies. Diana Hoyt, the stepmother of victim Krista Hoyt, later said, quote, I'm a nurse and I've seen my patients die. And they died a much more horrific death than what this man suffered through, that's for sure. He relaxed, went to sleep, and didn't feel anything. She continued by stating that today's been a very surreal day for me. It's like a dream. Walking through a dream. Outside the death chamber in a nearby pasture, anti-death penalty protesters sung Kumbaya and blowing in the wind. Dozens of media satellite trucks sprouted in another area in a scene reminiscent of the 1989 electric chair execution of Florida's most notorious killer, Ted Bundy. A year after Bundy's death, Rowling arrived in Gainesville on a Greyhound bus, pitched a tent in the woods, and recorded a small tape of self-written songs for his family. Years later, at an appeal hearing, Rowling broke out in song in honor of a woman he asked to marry him from prison. Reared a Pentecostal, Rowling sought spiritual advice on his last day from a minister at the church. Prosecutors had stated that Rowling himself said he swung between deep faith and pure evil, and at some point Rowling later said he vowed to kill a person for each of the eight years he had spent in prisons in Georgia, Alabama, and Mississippi. In addition to the five Gainesville murders, Rowling is also suspected of killing a family of three, the Grissoms that we talked about earlier, in his native Shreveport, Louisiana. Another motive for his killings, Rowling later said in one of his confessions that he wanted to become a superstar. His tools were simple. His K-bar knife, duct tape, a handgun, and a screwdriver for break-ins. For his first double homicide in Gainesville, he didn't need the screwdriver or gun when he saw the door was unlocked at Townhouse 113 in the Williamsburg Village Apartments. Rowling found Christina Powell, 17, sleeping downstairs. Upstairs was Sonia Larson. She was asleep as well. He bound them both, raped one, and stabbed them both to death. Their bodies were found the Sunday before the fall semester was to start at the University of Florida. They hadn't even unpacked all their boxes. The next morning, 18-year-old Christina Hoyt was found decapitated, her head wedged on a bookshelf. And the following day, Pauls and her apartment mate and friend, Manny Tabota, both 23, were found dead. The town of Gainesville was in a panic. A rumor hotline produced numerous bad leads and whispers that the police were hiding more bodies to cover up an even more massive slaying. Well, you know how that rumor mill churns. It flows like the water. Hundreds of University of Florida students disenrolled. Others slipped a dozen or more to a house. Deadboat locks flew off the shelves, so did guns. There are now memorials across the University of Florida campus, including five trees planted to honor the victims and a mural urging students to never forget. This episode is dedicated to a friend and brother that left entirely too soon. 
To Oliver Little, thanks for the inspiration and the support. And thank you for everything that you've done. Please support these and other stories by becoming a Patreon member or support us directly through Spotify. Visit us online at themountainmysteriespodcast.com and be a part of the conversation on the official Discord server of The Mountain Mysteries with links located on our website. Don't forget that we'll have new episodes of The Mountain Mysteries each Friday and now new episodes of The Mountain Mystery Chills releasing each Thursday beginning November 4th, 2021. For The Mountain Mysteries, The Mountain Mysteries Gatherings, The Mountain Mysteries Blurs, and The Mountain Mysteries Chills, I'm Chris Long. Stay mysterious. If you enjoy The Mountain Mysteries, please subscribe and give us a five-star rating. That helps us so much. You can also help support The Mountain Mysteries by visiting our sponsors, whose links are below, or by donating at Patreon or the PayPal link shown in the notes. Patreon subscribers will receive early commercial-free episodes and more.